0: Good morning, everyone. Yeah, all right. hoot hoot from the back. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, cheerleading section, right. Um, We have been looking at this series on cultural wars, really trying to dive in to see the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, and how they live their life, in their dreams, hopes, expectations, where their trust and faith rely, or lies, and how they are indeed very different than the non-believer. Now, we have something in common. We're all created in the image of God, and that gives every individual immense value before one another and before God, but that common ground really ends at that moment that we are all made in the image of God because the believer and the unbeliever could not be more radically different and it's not a difference of culture it's not a difference of language it's not a difference of social status or upbringing it is a difference of nature one is sold to god as their lord and savior and one rebels against god their nature is radically different and we've seen that in how we define christian We've seen that in how a Christian's goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, We've seen that in how the Christian approaches things like uh, relationships and marriage, how we are called to be separated from that which is evil and sinful and fall in love with and, and grab onto and hold onto that which is good and beautiful, right and true. And we've even seen as much as early as last week or as late as last week, how when we approach people, um, and we have that attitude of judging, and um, uh, we are to quickly and immediately, first and foremost, search our own hearts, see if there'd be any wicked way within us, see if there is sin that we need to deal with before we start attacking someone else about their sin. We're to deal with our sin first. That first idea of what self-care really means, it's an inward looking at our sin and asking God to make us right with him. Today, uh, wow. All right, let's, let's just turn to Romans chapter 13. I don't know how else to talk about this but to stick to what God's word says. Everyone, as soon as you turn to Romans 13, or if you already know what the beginning of Romans 13 is about, you're going to go, oh no, Tim stepped in it today. And while I have a multitude of opinions, and while I have multitude of ideas and fixes, we have to stick to what? God's Word says here about a Christian's role with authority, not just the government, but with authority in general. It is not only a touchy subject to talk about God and the government and politics and history. It's not only a touchy subject, it also is a subject that people fear to talk about in church. And there is nothing in all of God's word we should fear talking about and investigating and really diving into to say, Lord, what do you say about this? Because he doesn't want us to live guessing what our role is with one another, especially with, as he talks about in Romans 13, authority figures around us. So let's dive right into Romans chapter 13 and see how a Christian's view of government, a Christian's view of authority, is to be ours. Obviously, we're to have that same um, belief and practice that Paul lays out for us in Romans 13. And some of it I find just by human nature difficult to follow given who's in authority over me. But God never, never tells us authority should be followed if you agree with the authority. All right, let's look at this in Romans chapter 13, how a Christian engages in culture in this particular one area. He says, verse 1, let everyone, who does that include? When Scripture says everyone, who is that including? It's all of us, right? So all of us. Let everyone, all of us, sitting here in Pueblo, Colorado, let all of us be subject to the governing authorities. Okay, well, let's put our little thinking cap on and ask the question, who really is our governing authorities? If we're to be subject to them, which means we're to follow them, which means there are times where we have to obey them, Who are the governing authorities that Paul says we are subject to, that we fall under their responsibilities? And I think you can see it in basically a few different categories. One, there is a parent and child relationship where the parent has authority over the children. Okay, so that's one kind of role of authority that he could be talking about. And it's a governing authority. We manage their lives for a great extent of their time as their children living with us. So that's a governing authority. And we already know that there's a commandment that says, children obey your parents, honor your parents, that type of thing. So we understand that. That's one level of authority. Another level of authority is the church. There is an authority structure within the church with elders and pastors, that actually have the power that um, uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 to follow through with excommunication, which is church discipline. And they have a role and authority to present God's truth and hold people to that standard. And then there is an authority outside of family and church, and that is maybe a big umbrella of sort of different authority groups. We have um, people we work for, bosses, which is an authority, And then of course we have what we often think of as authority and governing over us, that is government, whether it be city, county, uh, state, uh, uh, federal government, or even world organizations that have authority. And so when Paul says, let everyone, us included, be subject, that is fall under their rule of governing authorities. I think Paul is talking about, in a general sense, every one of those areas. And that includes all of us, because all of us are, at some point, under someone's authority. We're always under someone's... Here's the rules and guidelines on how you need to uh, treat one another, how you need to obey the traffic laws, how you need to obey whatever it might be. We all fall under someone's governing authority in one of those areas, whether family, church, or outside in our culture and society. And so he sets off, first of all, this beautiful commandment, and it is a beautiful commandment because God gives it. And if God establishes a rule for our life, it's good, and it's necessary. And he doesn't have to give any other explanation to it, but here it is. And we saw just two weeks ago that We have to be very careful when God gives us a command that we have three ways of responding to it. Do you remember that? We have the way of responding, yes, I'll obey it. We have a way of responding saying, no, I don't want to obey it. And we have the way of saying, yes, but I'm going to give you conditions, God, on my obedience. And the no and the yes, but type of obedience is not what God's looking for. He's looking for the yes, obedience. And this is one of his commandments, rules that he gives us to live a holy life, is be subject to the governing authorities over you. And then he kind of, in the rest of that verse, he says, For those, for there is no authority except that which God has established. There's no authority except what God has established. Whether it's in a family environment, whether it's in a church environment, or whether it's in work or the government. God, multiple times in Scripture, talks about, I have established the king. I put him up and I tear him down. God is the one who establishes authority over us. So if we are upset... With the authorities, in a sense, you are all so upset with God's decision of who to put in authority. Now, this is the only time I think I'm ever going to mention this word, America. We have, in the course of history, a very unique environment when it comes to the government that is over us. Because of our constitutional republic, that's our government system, we have say in the conduct and um, who is put in those positions of authority. And whether or not you like the results of how people vote or how states vote or how the country votes, that's irregardless. Regardless if America's system of voting or a dictatorship, who takes it by force, or a communist regime, or even a monarchy. God is not talking about what type of governmental system you have to be obedient to. He's saying, I establish them all. I establish them all. And everyone in that role and authority needs to fall in line and be obedient, and he he talks more. We're going to get to more of the things that we're to do. It's not just obedience, but there's a lot more involved. He establishes it. Establishes it. All All of a sudden, that should kind of make the Christian step back and be a little bit more considerate on how we talk, and how we address and how we publicly present our feelings regarding who's in authority over us. That is not harder for anyone in this room more than me because I love being politically critical of those individuals who I do not agree with or who I do agree with, but not on this or that particular topic. This is not a yes, but command of God. This is a yes. Be subject to the governing authorities over you, because God put them in that position of power and responsibility. He goes on to say in verse 2, Consequently, or therefore, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So he says, you may think that you have a very unfair situation. You go rebel against it. You're rebelling against me because I'm the one who put it there. And guess what? You're going to pay the price for that rebellion. Paul... Remember, is talking in the context of the Roman government. Do you know what the Roman government was? And that's unfair to call it a Roman government. By the time Paul was in that first century A.D., there were emperors. Emperors were treated as gods and worshipped as gods. And if you didn't worship the god-emperor, you, well... Later on, just less than 50 years from this, you were thrown into the Colosseum and devoured by lions. It was a death sentence, martyrdom, not just for a Christian, but for those who didn't want to worship the emperor. There were no elections. There were no one that you couldn't put together a petition and appeal something and ask for the people to vote them out. There was none of that. When the emperor said this, it was this, and there was no discussion about it by this time. And there have been cultures and governments and societies far, far more long-lasting than this country we're living in that has always lived by that standard. There's one person totally in charge. You either follow them or you pay with your life. That is who Paul is applying. You need to obey the authorities over you. You may not like this system. You may not like this person. It doesn't matter. There's no yes, but in God's command for obedience. It's yes. And so Paul says, you rebel against this? Then you're not only rebelling against them, but you're rebelling at what God has instituted. And I know that you can come up with lots of examples in history and go, well, we can't allow that kind of government to exist, or that type of politician to exist, or that type of king or emperor to exist. We've got to rebel against it. We've got to fight evil. And yes, there is a time to fight evil, and we're going to be talking about that this morning, but that's not the point of these first two verses. The point of these first two verses is to get into our mind. God has established authority. We are required to be obedient to that authority. If we rebel against it, we pay the price. That's what he's getting across, and that's clear in family, in church, and outside of family and church Environments where there is authority over us, whether it be a boss or whether it be uh, the government itself. He goes on in verse 3 to explain in 1 Corinthians 13, "...for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended." This does happen often. I, I know that I talk about driving and you know my kind of craziness with driving, but it is far more often that I am obedient, in part to the traffic laws. All right, and there is just a really good feeling when there's a police officer that pulls up alongside of you, and you look down at your speedometer and you're going, yeah, total speed limit, awesome. Yep, I did the 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 1,000 at the stop sign. Yep, I did. I know he's not going to pull me over for that. Maybe something else. But, no, but there is just a really good feeling going, yeah. I, I don't have that immediate panic terror of, ooh, better put on the brake, because he will never know that I put on the brake and stop so quickly as I'm passing him. Never know that. They always know that. But there is a good feeling when you realize I've been obedient. I followed the law. You know, a teacher comes in and says, all right, class, and, and, and you don't have to live in terror. Or the boss says, it's time for a review, and you go, yeah, I, I did everything you've asked. I know that the work is accomplished, and you're commended for it. And Paul says, it is a good thing to be obedient to those governing authorities over you, because if you're not obedient, there could be this sense of fear, this sense of terror, this sense of, uh-oh, I've done something wrong, I'm going to get in trouble. But it's really good when you know that you have followed their instructions and you've done what you've been able to do, you've accomplished it, you get a pat on the back instead of a ticket. That is the idea that Paul is trying to present to us. It is a good and pleasant thing to be an obedient to those governing authorities over us. A good and pleasant thing. It's a bad thing to be in rebellion against them. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 4, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. The one in authority is God's servant. Regardless if they admit it or not. Regardless if they acknowledge God is the one who put me here. Because they're going to think, some may think, it's uh, the people that put me here. It's uh, my good talents, my persuasiveness, my connections, my money that put me here in this role of authority. But Paul says, no, no, no. God puts them in that position of authority. Regardless if they acknowledge it or not, they are God's servant, God's messenger for good. He continues and says... um, In that same verse, for the one in authority is God's servant for good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. How does God feel about those in authority and those who rebel against that authority? God says those in authority wield the sword. They have power of punishment, whatever that punishment may be, Uh, fines, prison, ultimately, capital punishment. God says that's a good thing that they have that because it does restrict evil. It does promote good. And I know that you're going to have a lot of, but Tim, do you know that sometimes they do bad things and they want us to follow bad things? And we're going to get there. We're going to get there, but just generally, these verses cannot be any more crystal clear. They are servants of God. Now, they should acknowledge that. They should realize, I am not in this position because I am so great for this position. I'm in this position because God has called me to it. Wow, if you had authority in your life, whether it be parents at school, at work, or in the government that acknowledged, I'm in this role because God has put me here, now that's the best of both worlds because you have someone in authority that acknowledges God's goodness in their own life. And so that can curtail some of the wickedness and evil that may be promoted. That's, a, that's an awesome thing to have parents that are believers, to have a boss that's a believer, uh, to have people that you work with that are believers, believer, to have people in government that are believers that acknowledge I'm here because God has placed me here. Regardless if they acknowledge it or not, God has placed them there. And God says, they are my servants. He continues in verse 5, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Paul does a wonderful thing here. Paul reminds us that Strict obedience is really not what he's after. God is not after just a strict obedience for obedience sake. He's after an obedience of conscience, which means my heart is sold to wanting to follow. Not just fear of punishment, fear of discipline, fear of fines and tickets and jail time. No, 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 no. He wants your heart, soul to it, your conscience, your very inner soul and being to say, yes, I want to follow. Because you are appointed as God's servant. And in order to show God that I respect and honor and love Him, I'm going to honor, respect, and follow and love you as well. Because you you are His representative that He put into power. And I want to follow that not because of fear, but I want to follow it because of my conscience. I have to do that which is right. But at the same time, those in authority wield power to put down disobedience and rebellion. He continues the last two verses in this section, verse 6 and 7. He says, This is also why... Oh, Paul... This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Now, whether or not that's good or bad, doesn't matter. God even brings in taxes into our role and relationship as believers to the authority over us. I don't know of... I guess, I guess in a sense we should be happy to pay taxes. And I'm talking not just compliant, but happy to pay taxes because God's put them in charge and God has given them a role and responsibility and taxes is part of it. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, I didn't think my cheering section was going to give me an amen on that one. Yeah. Yeah, long ago, long ago, Israel came out of Egypt, and there was a period of several hundred years where they were governed by judges, where God would raise up an individual and they would push out all the, the sinners and reestablish right worship. And so these judges went the whole series of judges. Uh, you know, Samson was a judge, Gideon was a judge, and several others. And eventually, Israel told God. We're tired of all these judges, because they'd start, and then 50 years would go by, and then we'd need another one and another generation would go by, and we want something established, and they said, "We want a king, just like all the other nations around us have kings." And God said, "Oh, I'm paraphrasing. but you can read First and Second Samuel, it's all there. Uh, God basically says, "I don't think you really know what you're asking for, because I've sort of have established Israel as a theocracy meaning, God, I'm in charge. And there's, you know, there's other people doing things, you know, taking care of business that needs to be done with, but there's no kings here, because I am in charge, a theocracy, God's rule. And the people say, no, 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 we really want a king. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a king, but two things are going to happen, and you need to realize this is going to happen. One, you're going to have to pay taxes to the king. And secondly, your young men will be forced into the army, they'll go to war, and some of them will die. Okay, so you want want what all the other nations have, you're also going to get two additional things. You're going to get taxes, and you're going to have war. And they're going to take your sons and your your husbands, and they are going to go fight for the king. And they said, oh yes, we want to. And then they got Saul. (laughs) Yay, great example, Saul. Saul. Uh, but then they eventually got David, a man after God's own heart, and then we have 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and Second Chronicles. A mess until Jesus came back and said, I'm the King of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. We don't need no earthly king. You have me. I am in charge. And the church has followed that leadership ever since. But this is also why you pay taxes, because the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing, give to everyone, what you owe them, and he's specifically talking in this role of governing authorities, he says, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. God can't be any more crystal clear how the Christian culture should respond to authority over us. He uses words like respect, honor, obedience, following them, and gives you reasons. God has placed them in that role, and they are serving God. Some of them do better than others, I know, but Paul's not giving us a yes-but opportunity. If we lived under a communist regime where all of a sudden that communist leader says, I am king and lord forever and ever, and all my family and descendants will be kings forever and ever and ever, our response to that is God placed you in authority and I will follow your rules and your law. I will pay my taxes, I will show you honor, and I will show you respect. And you do not know how hard that is for Tim to stand up here and say something like that. It is hard because there is this inborn part of tim that says i am a proud american no man is going to be king over my life i celebrate 1776 i have descendants that were in the american revolution i'm part of the sar the sons of the american revolution and yet i'm at peace when i say it doesn't matter before my relationship with god who my governing authorities are. Uh, Yes, I have preferences. (laughs) And yes, I have the right to vote and, and state my objections. But even if we lived in a country without that ability to vote or even openly object, like Paul's nation that he was part of, Rome, we would have to do the same thing. Be respectful, honor, obey, And pay our taxes. There is an exception, though. It's not a yes, but. It's really a yes, and. And we have a couple examples in Scripture, and I'm just going to list these very quickly. Uh, In Acts 4, verse 18 through 20, Peter and John and some of the other disciples were in the temple, and they were... um, uh, They were preaching about Jesus Christ. This is in the middle of Acts. And the the authorities rounded them up and said, you have got to stop preaching Christ. Stop talking about him. And Peter responds by saying, "Um, we understand what you're saying. We know exactly what you're saying. But here's our dilemma. Should we obey God or should we obey man? Should we obey God or should we obey man? God called them to preach the gospel in Christ's name. God called them to be witnesses. And the authorities were saying, you can't be witnesses. You can't do this. And they responded by simply saying, who do you want me to obey? After spending time in jail, who do you want me to obey? God or man? Of course, it was a rhetorical question, and the answer comes back, if I have a choice between the two... I'm going to obey God. Now, what man says is a law should be what God says. I mean, there should be common ground there. But men are wicked, sinful, evil. Some do not even acknowledge God. So they're going to establish laws that are evil. Yet they'll call it good, but it's evil. Just in that case of the apostles, there's another case in Exodus chapter 1 where Pharaoh who established himself as God incarnate, not just a king or an emperor, but actually a God who died and was buried and rotted in a, you know, a tomb, but nonetheless called himself God, told the Hebrew midwives, listen, any time one of the Hebrew women have a boy child, kill it. And they said, all right, they received that instruction, so they're out and about doing their midwifery stuff, midwifery stuff, and um, lo and behold, Pharaoh finds out there's a lot of male children being born. And they question, he questions the midwives and says, why are all these little children being born? And the story tells us, in narrative says they feared God more than Pharaoh, so they didn't kill the children. And then told Pharaoh, oh yeah, these women, man, they're, they're out in the field and... Whew, they have a baby and they're back to work. We don't, even, we don't even have a chance to take care of this. I don't know how it happens. They are hardy, strong women. And uh, the narrative tells us at the end of, or in the middle of Exodus chapter 1, God blessed the midwives. God blessed them. Because God has clearly says, Thou shalt not kill. And so a command and an order to murder, they're not obeying. Because it's a conflict between God's law and man's law. Who do we obey? God or man? Another case in point, Daniel chapter 3. We have three individuals who were part of Daniel's inner circle, three Israelites that came with Daniel from the uh, Babylonian captivity. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar set up that huge bronze statue of, or gold statue of himself and at the drop of a hat, everyone was to fall down who was in the crowd and worship Him. Worship Him, Nebuchadnezzar. The three Israelites stood. Well, Tim, they're disobeying the command of their governing authority. They're disobeying what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Well, yes, yes. They are disobeying the governing authorities, but they are also obeying a law that is higher than the governing authorities. They're obeying God who says, worship only me. We have cases throughout Scripture. We have cases throughout church history where Christians have had to make the stand with their life. Do I obey God? or do I obey man? And there may come a day in our own blessed country which was established on amazing principles of religious freedom and Christianity to the core. There may be a day where we have to either bow to man or stand for God. That, it doesn't terrify me. It doesn't um, doesn't make me fearful to live, but it makes me very circumspect. It makes me very cautious about how I treat and talk about those in authority over me and really praying for strength. Lord, help me stand for You when I am given the choice Do I obey God or do I obey man? Every time you stand and obey God over man, God is with you and God blesses you and God will take care of you. doesn't mean God will save you from jail or persecution, but that's a small price to pay to stay right with God. And if that is a struggle for you, if that whole topic is just gets your blood boiling and you can talk endlessly about what's right and what's wrong and how to stand, there is no better moment than right now as the elders come forward for communion than for you to be right with God. For you to surrender your fear and anxiety. For you to surrender your uncertainties about what the future will bring. For you to surrender your ill feelings towards those in authority over you. Maybe you're like me and you need to confess your sin. Maybe you need to confess how you have felt and wished things upon them. And ask the Lord, Lord, help me be appalled, and respect the authority over us and be courageous to make a stand when I'm called to make a stand. God never asks us to make a stand based upon the Constitution of the United States of America. He tells us to make a stand on what He said. We have an amazing privilege of freedoms that the world of history has never seen before. Let's show the world how to treat those in authority over us that we disagree with, with honor and respect and show them what standing for God looks like. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as You encourage us, as we come before Your table to celebrate the life and death and resurrection of Your Son, help us and encourage us to live rightly in this world when it comes to those in authority over us, whether it's home, church, work, school, or the government itself. Help us, Father, to be witnesses of Your truth, even when we have to make the choice of standing for You or bowing to those in authority over us. Give us power. Give us strength. Give us courage. Give us a great measure of Your Spirit so that He might guide and lead us in those very tense moments. And we know that You will bring peace and blessing upon us as Your people. In Jesus' name, all of